There we go. There we go. We're now live on YouTube. I flicked back in time this time as well so that I could see it actually going going live. Um, cool. So I'll do my little introduction. Um, tonight, or sort of midday for him, I guess, we've got uh, uh, Randy McElwee on for um, our podcast tonight. Thank you very much for jumping in. Um, correct me if I get any of this wrong, okay? But it's off your Facebook page, so. <laughs> <laughs> you can't believe Facebook. <laughs> um, so Pedro Sauer Black Belt, obviously. Um, retired Green Beret, which is cool. Hopefully we'll get into a bit of that. Um, owner at Gracie Jiu-Jitsu Athens as well. Yes, then, sir. Solid information. I did. Uh, I did a bit of uh, other research as well, and there was there was a lot of other black belts and arts and things that I wasn't going to list off. But um, <laughs> a, a very well-rounded martial artist. I, I've spent a little time on the mat, and I've been very blessed to uh, work with some of the greatest folks there are, uh, especially Professor Pedro Sauer. So, how long? Obviously, I was, I was looking through all of your all of the different arts that you've studied. You've got black belts in and things like that. Which one came first? Where? What was your first? Um, what was your first martial art? I started with Shotokan Karate. Uh, you know, back in in those times, back in those days, and I don't want to give away my entire age, but uh, back when the pterodactyls flew, <laughs> I started off with with Shotokan Karate, just good, basic, traditional, uh, straight line punches and doing karate. Nice. And what sort of um, what sort of led you to Master Sour then? What was the sort of, uh, how did that come about? Well, that is a long journey because the way it worked out is, uh, you know, I was doing karate and then back when the first UFC came out, uh, a friend invited me over, another guy from Special Forces, went over to his house. He and I trained karate together and he had a lot of background in judo and grappling and things like that. Went over to his house to watch the first UFC on television and saw Hoist Gracie annihilate everybody. And like most people back then, I decided, hey, I've got to get me some jujitsu. And it wasn't easy to find. Uh, so, you know, we started to search. And in the beginning, we couldn't even get Gracie jujitsu. All we could find was traditional Japanese jujitsu. We had a guy in uh, our special forces unit that had a lot of training, was a, a Japanese jiu-jitsu black belt and a judo black belt. And we started training with him and trying to um, develop that skill set. And that eventually worked out to where we were able to go train with Hoist and Horian Gracie and then bring them back to the special forces unit and get some training from them. Um, Worked with them, got my blue belt from Hoist Gracie. My first session with him was back in uh, October of 1998. So a little, a little ways back. And then uh, after I uh, continued training, I was, I, was, I was training under another gentleman that was a Pedro Sauer black belt. And then that eventually uh, was continued to be cultivated and led for us to be uh, you know, joined at the hip very proudly with Professor Sauer. Nice. Nice. And now all, all the people. So how many people were at, uh, are at camp this weekend then? Is it a busy one? Is it a bit quieter because of everything going on? Is it? It's just starting up. It's, it's actually um, just four, uh, almost five o'clock here in the evening. Guys are starting to wander in. We had the, the last two days have been the law enforcement training program and we had guys in for that. And we've seen folks triple it, trickle in. A lot of great folks are here already. Greg Nelson's here, Ryan Lasarius, uh, and of course, Professor. And so people are starting to find their way in. And then in about an hour, they'll be kicking off the first no-gi session with Ryan Lasarius. We're very excited about that. You know, awesome jujitsu guy. And he's going to share some secrets with us. Amazing. So what's the, um, so what was your sort of, obviously you don't have to you know, talk through the whole thing. How, what was your, um, so with the two day law enforcement sort of stuff, what, what kind of things are the guys learning from you and what sort of stuff, what does that look like? One of the things we're doing is we're, we're bringing a course to help make training more available to law enforcement. And the way we're making it work is we've got, we've been doing the program for a while ourselves, but now uh, based on some coaxing from Professor Sauer, 
And, you know, when professor asks you to do something, you, you can't say no. He's such a great guy. And it's such an honor to have him encourage you to do it. Based on that, uh, we brought our law enforcement program, refined it a little bit, working with him. And more than anything, what we've done is simplify the training process because there's been a lot of talk lately about how the guys don't get that much training. And, and there's a lot of misconceptions based on the fact that they do get a lot of training and it simply isn't true. So with that, what we've done is create a, a course that simplifies a lot of things and uses what we like to call multi-tools. And these multi-tools are techniques that can be applied to multiple situations so that you don't have to learn a lot of complex movements. Cool. And then we've also kind of tweaked it a little bit. And now we're taking this program to where more uh, academy owners within the association are able to bring the training to law enforcement officers in their communities. And that's the goal is to encourage more of the guys that are out there on the street protecting and serving as officers to come into academies and get regular training. And the guys will now have the details they need to make it applicable for law enforcement instead of just, you know, good self-defense training in jujitsu. Nice. How, how, um, how different is it? Do you, do you have to adapt it much for, for the law enforcement or, you know, would, would I recognize it just training jujitsu? I think you would. In fact, uh, at least half of it, you would look at it and go, man, I know that exactly. In fact, over the two-day course, yesterday was a, a more of the new portions that you don't always see in a regular jujitsu class because it was based on weapons retention so that the officers are able to maintain control of their weapons and safely manage that anytime mm -hmm. they have confrontation. But today, the second day, was based on groundwork. So a lot of the things that you already see, you know, a basic trap and roll, escaping the mounted position, those types of things so that the officers out on the street can have those skills translated to them. But our guys that are training jujitsu and our instructors already, they know the techniques, they just need a little tweak in order to make it fit the tactical situations that the law enforcement officers are gonna be in. The biggest challenge we have is getting our guys that are so skilled in jujitsu as instructors to go ahead and kind of scale it down and make things simpler because the guys know so much, but they have to remember that the officers uh, only get a slight amount of training and they're completely new in some cases to jujitsu. So we got to keep it very simple and get them convinced that they need to come in and get more and just make it so it's very usable and very practical for them as training. And when you're training, do you, do you have to like wear the, the full on you know, vest and everything to make it as, as close to real life as possible or, or, or not? We always prefer that. And that's part of the progression of the training. Ideally, what we'll do is start with just the, the tool belt, okay, the kit that the officers wear, their duty belt, and you know, training weapons that are mock weapons that can't be used, that provide the realism and then we'll progress. This initial course is a very entry-level program, so it's not designed to have everything on right away. Nice. How how um how receptive is it? Like, has has sort of law enforcement been to you to sort of these sort of courses and stuff? Because we obviously our you probably know our mentor is Professor Manganello. Um, yes. Obviously, he's involved really deeply now with the training and stuff and he was kind of always saying that it was always very difficult to get it into the training at the departments and stuff like that. How have you, has that been a problem? How do you find that? It's, it's always a challenge. And, and being prior military, we've had the same challenge in the military. The guys, uh, they're, they're some of the toughest folks to convince that they need the training. There's several reasons for it. You know, part of it is they got a very tough job that they got to go out and do. And mentally they've got to, convince themselves that they are somewhat indestructible in order to go out day after day and face the potential issues. Sometimes when you come into the jujitsu academy, you guys all know in every academy, there's uh, you know, a 17 year old girl that will put a hurt on your ego like nothing else, right? So with those cases, sometimes guys come in, they see that and it's very hard for them to go back out to do their job with the reality that any one of those people out there that they thought they could handle previously might have the skill to make their life, you know, potentially ending. So it, it's a, a challenge in that respect. We've had good uh, 
reception of the actual process we're doing. Because one of the things we do is we do a quarterly uh, community service training for all the officers in our area. Whenever we do that, the way that we go about it is we provide the training as free and we've done it donation based. And then they, you know, simply come in, get the training. And over time, we've been able to convince and build relationships with people that allow them to go ahead and, um, you know, connect with us on a level to where we're able to convince them that they should do more training. And, and really the key is finding people within their community that can help you um, convince them that they need the training and then make it an encouraging and positive experience. Sometimes the reason they don't want to train is their own training is very ego-based and the person presenting it may present it in a very rough manner. One of the things we try to show them is, hey, we're not here to embarrass you. We're not here to show you what you, you know, to prove to you what you don't know. We're here to show you what you can learn. And that's our goal. So we've had really good response with the courses and we've had great response and, and a lot of encouragement from other school owners and other police officers to get the training out there and present it to more folks. And that's kind of what we're doing starting with this year's camp. That's interesting. That's, yeah, it's really interesting. I was going to like you covered it really, but I was going to ask that question about like how much do they have to feel like, you know, not having been in law enforcement or anything like that, how much do they have to feel like they're, they're indestructible? That's really interesting that that would be a barrier to learning something like that. Well, you, you have to remember the key is these guys go out every day, their family, their folks and friends that they know they're in their circle. They look up to them and they understand that, you know, these guys have a tough job and they're going out there every day, putting themselves on the line. So a lot of times they look at them as almost indestructible. And anytime something happens that kind of pierces that bubble and proves that wrong to them, it's hard for them to go back and, you know, realign and jump back in there and face it. Everybody that's done jujitsu knows how, how crushing it is to the ego at one time or another, right? So, the, and what we get out of it for all of us is that lesson that you, you got to keep trying, you got to keep learning, you got you to fail in order to progress. And that's not always a comfortable concept because one of the challenges in a lot of law enforcement training based on the, the discussions I've had with officers is their training process for the most part here in the States is developed from an older conventional military uh, concept that's drawn mostly from our Marine Corps basic training, which, you know, there's, there's a lot of artificial stress induced in order to help the individual prepare for the real stress they're going to meet on the job. That's sometimes generated with a lot of yelling and a lot of, you know, stress-induced atmosphere that is chaotic. It's verbally chaotic. So a lot of times they interpret from that that they need to be very verbally aggressive and, you know, present that. One of the things we're trying to show them that I'm bringing from my background in Army Special Forces is a different kind of stress. Because in Army Special Forces, there really isn't anybody yelling at you. They create stress by the situation that at any one time, if you overlook a detail or you fail to know what's going on and be where you need to be, you could be completely finished. Your, your career, your opportunity to be with that organization is over because you weren't paying attention. Yeah. So it's very stressful, but it's not a lot of yelling. You learn to stay more calm in those yelling situations. And whenever you respond, you don't respond by yelling yourself because that wasn't the example you saw. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, no, that's interesting. It's just, it's interesting as well, like the comparison between our police officers and your guys, obviously our guys aren't, well, not unless they're called in, aren't armed. So it's an interesting uh, sort of difference in terms of, I guess, in a way, the threat level's different because our guys haven't got to worry about weapons retention in the same way. Um, absolutely but they haven't got those weapons if they get in real you know if they're faced with something <laughs> and, and I'm curious for you guys uh, and, and if you know and, and have background on it or have talked to folks what is the the training requirement what does it take to become a police officer there how much training do they get especially with you know going hands-on and being able to physically control a subject that may be combative it's not huge. We've got we've got a few we've got a few 
few guys who are police officers, some who have been police officers for a while. And we've got a couple, we've got what, three that, that like think, really new. Three off the top of my head. Yeah, that were really new recruits going through. And they actually right. started jiu-jitsu as they were going through their training. That's great that they did that. Yeah, yeah, really good. So, um, yeah, they were saying it's it's not a lot, was it? It wasn't out of there. They do like their course at a place, it's not Hendon anymore, at Chelmsford um, for their whole course. And I think it's like, you know, 10 weeks or whatever. Um, and it, it only makes up a small proportion. A lot of it is, they were saying, is very basic, very basic stuff, very much about um, getting the arms isolated for cuffing as quickly as possible, basically, but not a lot of technical stuff in terms of uh in terms of sort of jiu-jitsu stuff and we had one firearms officer as a member and we um dave and he he kind of he was in for a long time as a firearms officer um and he used to joke a lot about the training so right let's <laughs> not get into that eh? <laughs> yeah yeah so uh, yeah we won't we won't put anyone on blast or anything but yeah <laughs> uh, yeah he said it was it was not very much so yeah so well, one of the things that, that I like to, to tell people from my experience is the public doesn't really understand how little training the officers get versus how much they need. Uh, and I tell them to think of it this way. If I were to give you a brand new helicopter right now and tell you, hey, it's all yours. I'm going to need you to fly it in 11 weeks. That's, <laughs> you know, a standard you know, in our area, police academy time. Now they vary state to state and different organizations have longer training periods. Now you've got 11 weeks to learn how to fly this helicopter. It's very technical. It's very detailed. If you mess it up, you could obviously crash and there could be some disastrous results, just like the situation they're going into. Based on that, now I tell them, okay, you obviously know nothing about flying a helicopter. I'm going to give you 20 hours to learn to fly this helicopter. How well do you think you could fly a helicopter after only 20 hours? <laughs> so, <laughs> and that's the challenge that a lot of the guys are running into is, is they're being asked to do this very difficult job and task and working with the public and having to deal with folks that aren't complying with the law. And they're flying this helicopter with so little training that it does make it extremely challenging for them. One of the things we're trying to do is get more opportunities out there so the guys can really learn how to maneuver that, you know, physical confrontation helicopter. Yeah. Well, I mean, I'm just, I'm always amazed. It's a job. Whenever I watch, we probably, you probably have them there as well. We have a lot of shows over here, especially at the moment where they're showing sort of police officers and, you know, things that go wrong because obviously everyone's filming on on phones now and yes you know, when when police chases go wrong and all those kind of stuff and i just I, every time i watch it i just go i couldn't do that job i couldn't do that job you know it's very difficult it's a yeah crazy job and even even our our guys that train with us you know i just i just yeah i, I don't know how I've, I've said it to them like i just don't know how you do it i don't know how like patient how you have the patience as much as anything to do it to deal with the right the data well imagine any job that you do even in an office if you had someone all the time just standing behind you with videoing what you did and you were going to get reported for any mistake that you made how difficult that would make things for you even for a standard job now you're going to up the stakes you know pretty critically to where things could go badly wrong and the consequences could be deadly for you or somebody else and even if you make the right call, if public opinion's not perceived correct and the, the story gets out ahead of you, there's a chance that the officer might not get backed up and he may actually go to jail. Now you've got to deal with the culture that you've been fighting against all this time. Yeah. Yeah, it's tough, especially at the moment. It's probably the toughest it's been for them for a long time, I guess. I don't know about over Absolutely. there. Absolutely. I tell my guys that, in, that right now uh, – Law enforcement is in its Vietnam era. There was a time when, you know, we had this interaction on the military side based on things that happened in Vietnam and the military was very unpopular based on things that had happened and how things had been handled and portrayed and perceived. And it made it very difficult to serve in the military. 
exactly the same kind of situation is occurring with law enforcement now. And these guys have probably the toughest job there is. Yeah. Well, it's good that there's, you know, the Grace Jiu Jitsu is starting to uh, filter in and give them better, better tools. Definitely. Absolutely. Our challenge is getting them to uh, accept them and to, to want to use them. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. So jumping back, how's it been, how's it been for you with, you know, purely on the jujitsu side of things, how's it been with your, you know, with your academy and everything with COVID and how's, how's that been? Have you been out of carry on? And I know it's really different for you guys over there, like state to state and things like that. It, it varies a lot. Uh, we've been very blessed uh, in our state in Georgia. We did have a shutdown period. We shut down mid March till beginning of June, not very long compared to a lot of folks in a lot of areas. And during that time, uh, what we did was we immediately shifted our focus because we, we had a project that we were working on where we were putting our entire curriculum on video and uh, putting it up so that all of our students would have access to it through our internal system, the same way they have access to the curriculum from the Pedro Sauer Association, you know, from Professor. But we wanted it to be, you know, directly related and for them to see us teaching it. We were working on a little bit, and then once the shutdown happened, we shifted gears and directed all of our time to that and went ahead and finished it, edited it, put it up online so that our students had access. We made that our priority. And then once we completed that, we were still shut down, so we changed gears and did what a lot of folks did, went to Zoom and Facebook Live classes so that our students could stay connected with us. We had really good response from, from both of those uh, programs. And we also have a network with uh, primarily a sister school that's just a few miles away. And we were working together on some of this. We, they had a Zoom class on at one time, and then we would have it at a separate time. So all of our students from both academies could view both Zoom sessions. So we kind of supported each other that took a little bit of the load off. So not one academy was doing all the work via Zoom. And then uh, from there, we did a progressive reopening. We took a lot of precautions, made sure once we were authorized in our state to resume training, we started with what we called partner pairs so yeah. that uh, you had a designated partner that you only worked with. We kept, uh, we, we cordoned off the academy into large grids so that there was space for everyone and there wasn't, uh, you know, contact and interaction. We closed down some of the procedures that we have, you know, we shut off our water fountain. So, you know, there was no public use of that, those type of things. We asked people to come, you know, in ready to train, already dressed in their geese. So they weren't spending time in changing rooms and interacting. And we built from there and then eventually reopened to what has been more of a normal pace for us. We had professor come and do a seminar at the end of June and had a great turnout. And then we continued to be basically opened almost business as usual from there. And we've been extremely blessed throughout that time. We have a lot of uh, medical personnel. We've got, uh, you know, nurses, doctors that are students of our academy, folks that work in the operating room. So we would talk to them daily and get direct response as to, you know, based on what they could tell us. Obviously, there's some information they couldn't share, but whenever they could uh, advise us on how the situation was. We took information from them and we continue to work based off of that. We've been extremely blessed in all that time. We've had no one that has come down or contracted uh, COVID or tested positive. We have had some folks that, you know, through their work or whatever, had a person that was in their organization outside of, of our academy that received positive notification and they were able to isolate and not come to the academy during that time. We've had a lot of great cooperation. We have so many good folks. And one of the things we did from the beginning was ask them, if you feel at all unusual, you have a sniffle, you know, a fever, of course, or any type of thing that for any reason, you just don't feel 100% that day, do us a favor, don't come in if there's any doubt whatsoever. And people were really great about that. We had folks, you know, contact us and say, Hey, listen, I think I'm fine. It, it may be allergies. I don't feel anything, but I'm, I, I'm off a little bit. So I'm not coming in. 
and, and we were very thankful for that. As a result, we have had a lot of participation and no uh, incidents related to uh, the pandemic as a result. And that's, yeah, that's great. It just shows that it works as well. If you do just basic stuff, you know, straightforward stuff. We, it's funny because we were talking about it before, even before the pandemic kind of showed on the radar, we, we actually said, actually, we've got to talk to everyone and say, like, if you don't feel great or if you've got a cold or just please don't come to training because <laughs> before right before, absolutely yeah like Robin and, and we've like, always done that even like you know uh previously in flu season and things like that and there yeah. was a lot of talk about you know extra cleaning it really didn't change that much for us because we've always focused on providing that atmosphere at our academy being very clean very sanitary making sure that folks are always washing their hands that those were things that were already ingrained into our culture yeah 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 we were talking about it before the pandemic we were just saying that like we were getting sick far too often and we're like then people must be coming to class not you know when they're not feeling very well or they haven't recovered Absolutely. from whatever it was and yeah we we did send out to everyone like you know before it started please let if you've got a cold or please you know we know you love training but you know do, <laughs> right. do us all a favor and, and don't come and you know especially if we're, we're running kids classes and they're sneezing in our faces and things like that <laughs> right <laughs> that now, we are a predominantly adult academy you know we're we're 75% adults so our kid population is is much smaller and we had a, a a more of a different effect with the kids the kids didn't come back as quickly they were much more cautious and it took them a lot longer to ease back in and there was a lot more concern from parents which we fully understand and you know even though that the results and the statistics don't indicate that children are, are affected very much that you got to, you know, proceed with caution when it's your child. Of course. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, no, that makes sense. It, it seems quite nice to, um, you know, to, to be able to go back to training in some, some capacity from like June. We've honestly been so grateful because we, we see yeah. and we know so many folks throughout the, the community, especially in the international perspective, that haven't been able to train. We, we have another program at our, our school called the Casey Fighting Method. And yep. we work with guys out of Spain. And, yeah, yeah. Uh, and they have had a very difficult time and a lot of lockdown. And we haven't been able to uh, do as much training with them this year as we normally would. We usually have, you know, three to four camps a year to where we work with them. And uh, those were, you know, definitely affected. So it created a lot of a lot of gratitude for us to be able to work on the jujitsu side. Yeah. Yeah. We're still not there yet. <laughs> yeah, we, the, the three of us aren't allowed to touch each other. <laughs> we, so we, we haven't been able to touch each other for, for eight months. Yeah. Yeah. So we so, can't even do the videos. We, we couldn't even oh, do, the, no. do the videos. That yeah. makes it much, much more challenging now for us. Um, you know, we did the videos, it, my son and I run the Academy, so it was just the two of us. It, yeah. it didn't change our routine. Anyway, we were already always in contact with each other, yeah. you know, because we live together. So that was, uh, part of what made it work is, is some yeah, luck. How old's your son? My son just turned 20 years old and, uh, he's been training since age four. He, he grew up in the Academy and uh, it's, he's really the whole reason I started the academy. When I retired from the military, uh, a lot of the jobs and things I was offered were all about me going and, and you know, traveling a lot and being gone. And I had already been uh, away from him quite a bit. So I decided that I wanted to do something as a second career that would allow me to be home, spend time with him. And based on that, I, I looked at it. I opened the jujitsu academy. And then when he was young, I would actually bring him to the school with me every day. He got a little older. I would take him and, uh, you know, drop him at school on the way to the academy. And then it just continued to grow. He's actually the reason we had a children's program from the beginning, because I had to have an after school activity for my son to keep him busy while he was at the academy. What's, um, what's your, what's your um, tips then for, for kind of keeping um, kids engaged as they get older and older and older because obviously they kind of hit that middle ground don't they where it's quite hard to uh, I think we spoke to it was Mark Cookrow we spoke to about it yeah, wasn't yeah. it was keeping, 
keeping them keeping them engaged as teenagers when sometimes maybe they have other things yeah distractions <laughs> the the key for us was um I got some great tips a long time ago from Horian Gracie. Uh, he had come to do a week-long training event with us at uh, my special forces unit. And I was blessed to be able to, to be his sponsor and kind of drive him around during the week, take him to some of our training events so he could go shooting and see some of the activities. You know, I got to have dinner with him most every night. And one of the key conversations we had, because I asked him while I was driving around is, you know, I know in your family, you guys start jujitsu almost before you can walk. How do I possibly teach a two-year-old how to do jujitsu? I, I don't understand how you do it. And, uh, you know, he said to me, you know, Randy, I, I don't do the accent very well, but he, he said, Randy, the key is you've got to make it fun. Yeah. And you've always got to stop while they still want more. And, uh, you know, because he, he would say, you know, the kids will always say, again, dad, again, dad. And then you've got to stop while they're still saying that and kind of keep it just a little bit away from them. And I applied that principle through the process. And, and you know, Horian is definitely a, a genius when it comes to jujitsu and he understands how to teach from that level. And I've applied it very well. In the teenage years, it does get a little more challenging because there are all those distractions. Um, the, the one thing that, that we would always do is because uh, the biggest distraction for the, the guys at that age is the girls. So we were blessed enough to have a lot of girls in the class. It helped to encourage him to come in and train. And his whole circle of friends was built around the academy and training from the beginning. Fantastic. Yeah, it's nice to hear. And, and now he's 20, Randy. Does he, uh, does he give you trouble on the mat? At what point do they get too much? Uh... You, you absolutely bet he gives me trouble on the mat. Uh, <laughs> you know, he's he's been training since age four. The truth is he he knows more jujitsu than I do. Uh, he he just doesn't know how to apply all of it the same. And and I know my time is short and I'll be tapping to him all the time very soon. So I'm enjoying it while I can. And more than anything, it's it's kind of a connection for us. Jiu-Jitsu has allowed us to have a lot of difficult conversations because, you know, I can get him trapped in the car on the way to a seminar or something that I lured him into because he wanted to go train. And then I can have those difficult conversations that a parent needs to have because he can't escape. And I lured <laughs> him in with jujitsu. And in, even once we get past the difficult part, we get back to laughing, joking and having fun talking about training on the mat. No, he's good. He's good. So talking about his game, let's talk about kind of um, your jiu-jitsu. How would you, this is a difficult question, how would you kind of characterize your own jiu-jitsu? How would you describe? I would describe it as a work in progress. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's uh, probably the best way. I'm, you know, a lot of guys are, are more athletic. I'm, I'm a little older. Than, than probably your average guy doing some jujitsu. I've been working at it for a long time, but I always go back to what professor says about, and it coincides with what I learned in special forces. Um, you know, a lot of folks look at the, the Green Beret aspect of it and think, man, you guys know a lot of stuff. You, you've got a lot of training, but it always comes back to being brilliant at the basics. So I, I take that from professor and I try to work a lot on, you know, having really good basics and the details. The nice thing about it is, you know, you get to black belt and really what you find out is you finally got your learner's permit. Now, you know, just enough to uh, start to figure jujitsu out. And uh, that's kind of why I would say my jujitsu is a work in progress. I'm finally at a place to where I understand enough that I can really start to learn it. And, and as professor says, uh, you know, don't just do jujitsu no jujitsu and i'm starting because of all the time i've, I've got to spend with him over the last few years to really know and understand jujitsu and what makes it work i think some, something that like, people don't believe always is that you know you're constantly having those light bulb moments you know you would have heard <laughs> something like seven eight ten you know a hundred times before but for whatever reason it doesn't kind of register or make sense 
But but if I can ask you, like, what, what was the last light bulb moment that you had on, on the mat, sort of, you know, with jiu-jitsu? What was one of the things that, that recently came to me, and, and I, I say the same thing. I always tell my guys that jujitsu is like an archaeological dig. You know, somebody's been there before. They came in with the backhoe and uncovered the big pieces. You know, you do that as a white belt. You get, a, you know, progress a little further. You start to use a shovel. As you get up into the brown belt area, you might be using a little hand scoop and moving pieces away. But when you get to the black belt level, You've got that little wispy brush and you're kind of just brushing little flecks of dirt away and you're looking for one little piece of gold. And it's amazing. You'll see the same move again and again and again. And at one point, that brush will flick away and you'll see the gold. The, the biggest one I've had lately, and, I, and it's more of a principle rather than an actual single thing, but everything keeps coming back to this one concept for me in most recent time. I got it from Professor, and the, the idea is everything is about connection. And you hear a lot of this whenever you listen and, and or if you get an opportunity, as I did previously, to train with Hickson, and everything he talks about is connection, that you have to feel it. The connection that I've learned is it's not just the connection to your opponent. It's connection between you and your opponent and between you and the ground. You've yeah. got to be connected to the earth. If I don't have a connection to the planet, I don't have any way to move anything. Mm -hmm. If I were sitting on a swing and I tried to push you, I wouldn't be able to move you at all because you're connected to the ground. I would move myself. So it's important that I understand with every move who controls the connection. And if at any point I'm struggling with the move, it's because I'm not properly connected to the person I'm working with or I'm not properly connected to the ground. And so I always have to go back and, you know, just like a car battery, when your car won't start, the first thing you should do is check the connections. I check the one between me and my opponent. And then I check the second one between myself and the earth to make sure I've got both components in order to make it work. Love that. I tell you what, that's the second time randomly this week that that's come up for me. I heard an expression the other day that you can't fire a cannon. And I was <laughs> It's like the same idea. You just, yeah, can't fire a cannon out of a canoe. That you've got to have that base. That. <laughs> That's very true. Absolutely. So, and you know what? The the thing that I've noticed more than anything, like you said, is it keeps coming up. Yeah. It's not one of those things that, that I saw and I was like, okay, that's good information. But I see that principle now in almost everything that we do. And and we reinforce it. I know we we steal the quote shamelessly. But we say at our academy, you know, whoever controls the connection controls the confrontation. And it, it's critical with every piece of the move. It's fantastic. Yeah. I'm going to be, I'm going to keep thinking about that now every time I'm uh, messing around on the mats. <laughs> good, good. Randy, one of the questions I wanted to ask you, it's rare that we ever get a chance to talk to somebody that knows so many martial arts and have had to probably be in situations where you really, really needed it and had to use, um, you know, your, you know, some of those skills. What one stands out for you? You're talking to us today about jujitsu, but is it jujitsu above and uh, above all of the others, or, or do any of the others like jump out and and and, and you keep? Well, with Years ago, you know, I had the I had the privilege of going through this process uh, and kind of working through this concept to determine which martial art would be most effective for Army Special Forces. And it was kind of a task given to me because at the time I was training and we looked at a lot of different martial arts. Um, we looked at, you know, all the basic and key ones. We looked at uh, Krav Maga. You know, we looked at different things uh, and different pieces of different martial arts. And we came to Gracie Jiu-Jitsu. And one of the things we discovered about it is it's very complete. It's very well packaged. It works very well. It gives you a lot of options, which are key. And it's, it has the same, um, you know, continuity throughout the concept of training that you're able to apply it in a limited fashion or you're able to escalate it to a very dynamic fashion that makes it extremely useful. And it's one of those things 
the, the Krav Maga we saw was effective, especially if you had a short amount of time and you needed to get from point A to point B. But it didn't allow the growth that we like to have with our guys in the special forces. We want them to continually be able to build on it, adapt and move forward. Now, the nice thing about it is after spending, uh, you know, 20 years training in jujitsu and learning those concepts, I've, I've seen that jujitsu as a whole is a very complete art, but realistically it does have certain holes in it because it's not built to cover every circumstance. It's probably one of the most inclusive and effective ones. And the other piece that, that we found is in that Casey fighting method that we were able to you know, address situations that don't necessarily fit into jujitsu. And one of those is multiple simultaneous attackers. And even a lot of folks in jujitsu admit that, you know, there is a flaw here because if I engage someone in jujitsu, I close the distance, I clinch, I take them to the ground. Now I'm focused on just one person. And, you know, there's some magic in that for a lot of situations, but there's a flaw in it under some circumstances if there's more than one person. And I have to always consider that when I'm looking at realism. Mm. So the only system that I've seen and found uh, that adequately addresses the concept of multiple simultaneous attackers is the Casey fighting method system. Yeah. One challenge that we have and we've learned over the 15 years of having the academy is we've done such a great job of teaching jujitsu that some of our students, you know, wholeheartedly insist they don't need anything else. And uh, sometimes it hurts because as a martial artist, you want them to continually explore, grow and find those pieces where they can add more things. Um, but unfortunately, our guys believe in Gracie Jiu-Jitsu so much that they sometimes forget or, or you know, just refuse to look at anything else. So those two systems for me have proven to be very complete overall. The one thing I would say is that there's a key to the process in learning the Shotokan karate as my fundamental and my foundation is it gave me some pieces that I didn't necessarily get from Gracie Jiu Jitsu and didn't, you know, see in the KFM system, but it allowed me to have a good foundation that was really receptive to putting the other arts on top of and making them even more effective. So I think that's the key. Um, one of my mentors, Alan Baker, uh, you know, has more black belts than anybody can count in some of the highest arts there are and always from the best person within that art. And what I see from him is that um, that attitude of being an eternal student. And, and that's my favorite part. And I always encourage that. Fantastic. Thank you for the insight. Yeah. My pleasure. Yeah. No, it's getting there. Uh, yeah, it's interesting. Because obviously, yeah, you've studied loads of different arts. And then, yeah, like you say, you see people like Alan Baker training all of his different arts. And yeah, it's, it's good to see that people don't get too single-minded about their training and about their, you know, like you say, people get a bit too um, focused on one art, don't they? And then they don't, you know, don't really see any benefit outside of that, even if there is something that's staring them in the face that's useful. Absolutely. I guess the opposite of that is if sometimes people get a little bit too wide of their focus and don't actually get uh, adequately good at any of it. Yeah, I think that's definitely a problem as well. Yeah. Uh, one of the things I tell everybody when they start training is, you know, look at your why. Why are you training? What, what is it you want to accomplish? You know, it, it, it's different for everybody. If it's self-defense, then always think about the concept of, you know, does this fit my goal of self-defense? If it's sport, then, you know, obviously you're going to have a different focus and your training is going to progress a different way. For, for us, we are very self-defense oriented. So we always ask the key questions, right? Um, and, and for us, they are, when you're applying this, can someone punch you and can you effectively defend it if they try to punch you? The other question we always ask is, you know, Will it work against someone who is at least six inches taller and 60 pounds heavier? That's critical. And then 
We also like to, to refer, and we, we get this from, uh, you know, the Gracies, the idea of, is the technique a natural body movement? Or do I have to be, you know, inherently flexible? Do I have to be extremely strong? Is it requires something that the average and most normal people don't possess inherently? Yeah. Yeah. No, that makes sense. It's got to pass the test, right? I'm going yeah, to be, absolutely. I'm going to be yeah. green now and ask another one of my questions, Randy. Sorry. Um, sure. Tons and tons of black belts. Um, green beret, you know, black belt in jiu-jitsu as well. Some of those things are like legendary achievements that most people could only ever dream of. Which one, which one like ranks above all, all others for you and, and why? Oh, I got to pick one? <laughs> <laughs> you can give us more for different reasons. Yeah, what uh, Probably, probably for me, you know, I, I have to say that that obviously I'm I'm very uh, proud and blessed to have accomplished those things. Uh, more than anything, it's probably the fact that um, I don't think I'm done yet. Uh, I've got you know more to do, and I'm most proud of the opportunity to share what I've learned with students and to have people you know spend their time and money to come into my academy, see me, train with me, and you know, take anything that I might have to offer and uh, apply it to themselves. I always tell everybody, um, you know, I didn't really do anything better than anybody else. The only thing I did was I was more stubborn than everyone else. There were tons of people <laughs> in each one of those, uh, you know, fields, whether it's the, the, the military training or within the martial arts training that were much more talented than I was much more, you know, physically fit, you know, better looking, better personality, all those things. The only thing that I was able to do was just keep coming, you know, to just keep showing up, keep doing my best and keep doing what I was told. And more than anything, the, the thing that I'm most proud of is all those times I wanted to quit. I didn't. And believe me, there were many times. And that's the key, especially to jujitsu. You're going to want to quit if you're doing it right. And it's hard sometimes to give yourself the pep talk of staying in the game. Which was the hardest to achieve, Randy? <laughs> Which was the hardest? Yeah. Oh, man. Um, let's see. I would say probably the hardest, um, believe it or not, was the black belt. For the jujitsu. Um, for, for me, and uh, mainly because uh, I may be a slow learner, but I was actually, I was a blue belt for 10 years. And, uh, you know, I got my, my blue belt from Hoist Gracie and then worked on continuing training. And it took me 10 years to get from blue belt to purple belt. Now, some of that was because of, you know, activities and situations and things that I had uh, you know, going on in life with, with the military, because some of that happened during the 9-11 the time, and that made it a little harder to train. But the, the sheer just duration to keep coming, keep training, keep getting humbled again and again by guys that, you know, were better at it than you, and to just, you know, keep stepping out there and, and you know, getting schooled. <laughs> Yeah, it's certainly not easy. Um, but no, no it's, it's never easy. And, and a lot of folks think that it's easy for some folks, but I, I think it's difficult for everyone just in different ways. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, I'm painfully aware that you've, uh, you're getting close to your time with, uh, to get off to your Ryan Lazara's seminar and definitely don't want yes. to hold back from that. Um, yeah, that sounds like it's going to be awesome. So, um, is there anything you want to like um, that you can promote or if people are in the area, where, where can I get a hold of you? And if they want to do the courses and stuff that you're running. Absolutely. The, uh, the best thing is if you're missing the current uh, world conference and fall camp here, you know, you, you're definitely missing out this weekend and I'm sorry. I didn't mean to rub it into you guys, but um, <laughs> Hopefully you guys will be at the next one. I look forward to, to meeting you in person, seeing you there. Uh, if you if you have any questions, anybody does of me and wants to get a hold of me, uh, you can definitely find me on Facebook. Um, you can always reach out and uh, contact me at AthensJujitsu.com. 
And uh, if you're ever in the, the area of Georgia in Athens, definitely come by, check out our academy, come in, train with us or our sister academy in Commerce, Georgia. And, uh, you know, if you, if you think that the training we're doing, especially for law enforcement or our women's self-defense program, any of those things that we put a lot of time and, and spend a lot of effort on, and you'd like us to, to be involved and do that for you, get in touch with us. We'd be happy to come to your academy if restrictions will let us. And uh, we'll come and uh, train with you because we'd love to do it. And I, I got one question for you guys. Which part of the UK are you in? We are, um, we're about sort of 40 minutes, 30 minutes, 40 minutes outside of London. East. Awesome. Yeah. It's been it's been way too long since I've been to London. I, I hope things will lift at some point and maybe I'll get a chance to uh, swing back through there and uh, come up and see you guys. I, I oh, always right. love my time and trips there. It was great. It was usually a stopover to, uh, you know, a much less wonderful place, but it was always great to spend a little time there. And I would definitely love to have you anytime, anytime. Yeah. And uh, just, yeah. just wait till social distancing is done. Otherwise, we won't be able to do any jujitsu. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> mm. you, well, the, uh, you mentioned you've got a good Irish name, and uh, Nick, when you do pass through, maybe we can uh, go and find a couple of Guinness or something. And uh, I think Haldor <laughs> always loves a Guinness. He'll pop over and, uh, and say hello as well. I'm sure. Absolutely. Yeah. Would would love to do that. Like I said, uh, have had some awesome times in London. And uh, would welcome the chance to spend a little more time there, enjoy it. And if you add jujitsu in, it's always a win. Awesome. Wicked. Well, enjoy those seminars. Um, have a great weekend. Say hello to everyone for us and say hello to Master Sal for us. And, uh, yeah, hopefully we'll be there on the next one. Yes, fingers crossed, guys. Thank you so much for having me on. I really appreciate it. It was an honor. And uh, hopefully things will progress and get better and you guys can get back on the mats and start training. I know how tough it is to miss it even for a moment. So, uh, you know, my fingers are crossed for you. Thank you. Thank Brilliant. you. Thank you very much. Right. I'll uh, stop the live.